Bob Murphy Show, episode 39. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everybody welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show I really enjoyed the following interview, the one you're just about to listen to, with Stefan Kinsella. Uh, Stefan and I have known each other for years. We know each other from Mises Institute events and just online arguing about stuff. When I, with Gene Callahan, published a critique of Hans Hoppe's argumentation ethics, Stefan was one of the bulldogs to push back. Believe it or not, we didn't actually get into that topic on this episode and that, that I went into it thinking, of course, we're going to talk about that because finally, because it's the kind of thing where in print, I think we just kept talking past each other. And so I was really looking forward to hashing out our dispute on that. And we just ran out of time that we were, you know, we're talking about private law, stuff like that. It, it took us more than 10 minutes to settle the issue of how could um, a legal system exist without the coercion of the state involved. So anyway, it's a great interview. Uh, I I think you'll learn a lot. Stefan's a very smart guy. And uh, we cover a lot of territory, like I say, private law in particular. And, of course, his path-breaking work on intellectual property. And I'll have to have him back on in the future to talk about our dispute over argumentation ethics. As far as his official bio here, I'm getting this from his website, Stefan Kinsella is a practicing patent attorney, a libertarian writer and speaker, director of the Center for the Study of Innovative Freedom, and founding and executive editor of Libertarian Papers. So without further ado, here is my interview with Stefan Kinsella. Well, welcome, Stefan, to The Bob Murphy Show. Thanks, Bob. Glad to be uh, here. Now, I've probably the first order of business is to clarify that your name is not Stephen Kinsella, even though many people write it as such. I answer to anything. Um, I go by Norman sometimes, my first name. Uh, there's actually two – there are two literally Stephen Kinsella's, and one's in Ireland and one's in England, and uh, they spell it with the E. I'm with an A, like Stephanie. Mm-hmm. And we each get each other's emails from time to time over the last 15 years, and we will helpfully forward them on to each other. Usually, Usually it's them forwarding something to me, and they are like, why am I getting this – insane libertarian crap. Yeah, they're like, we're not radical libertarians. I don't understand why people keep <laughs> accusing us of being nut jobs. Yeah, there's Well, once an once an economic journalist and actually I did a I did a podcast recently for some libertarian uh, some bitcoin something podcast and we had set it up by email and I think the host I, someone else VJ Boyapati had recommended I do it. And the host that must have googled me, but he found the guy from Ireland. And when we started talking, he says, oh, why don't you have an Irish accent? I said, because I'm st- – and I said, oh, do you think you're about to talk to the Irish economist journalist? He says, yeah. I said, that's not me. If you want me to get him for you, I can. <laughs> he says, no, we have five minutes to start the show. Let's go with it. So, <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's the one I, I debated, that guy Noah uh, Smith, the uh, the Reuters guy. Or the – you know what yeah, I mean? Oh, the, I know, uh, yeah, I know who you mean. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, the uh, on it was on Austrian economics versus Keynesianism or something like that. But it was kind of funny that the host thought he was about to interview an Irish guy. But yeah, it's Stefan. Well, and actually, you're. I mean, I don't know the other guy, but I'm guessing you would have done a better job defending Austrian economics than that other guy. Yes. Uh, yeah. I don't think he knows very much about it. He's he's more of a mainstream mm-hmm. uh, economic journalist, and the other guy's an antitrust lawyer. So, uh, yeah, they had the right guy. Yeah. It's just the host oh, had I got you researched the wrong you. biography. Yeah. I think so right? you were the right that. guy. Just, yeah, he got missed. Okay. I think so. Yeah, yeah. There's um there's a, a poor Robert Murphy who's an econom I think a macroeconomist who's a Keynesian, and I just feel horrible for that guy. <laughs> <laughs> because you can imagine like all the people like who probably assume that, you know, when they see something like, hey, aren't you the guy that challenged Paul Krugman? He's like, no, I promise you that's not me. Well, and not to jump the gun, but things like this is sort of an, uh, one example I give of why trademark is not really necessary, trademark law, because people have the same names and yet they manage to figure it out. You know, let's say, oh, you're the Stephen Kinsella from Ireland or, you know, you're the Rob Bob Murphy who does this or you're the one who went to Columbia or New York, you know, so people find ways of distinguishing uh, when they need to. Yeah, that's, that's, that is a good point. Okay, before we get into the good stuff, the juicy stuff, first we need to know the origin. And so uh, long-time listeners know that I do this when I have a guest who's somebody well-known within libertarian and Austrian circles. We stop and say, how did you get here? So w- w- with whatever detail you want to get into, Stefan, why don't you tell us uh, how did you come to be the legal mind of the libertarian movement, if you will? Yeah, and I, if anyone's interested, I, I have a little chapter in Walter Block's book uh, on uh, libertarian biographies or something, um, and uh, mine's called How I Became a Libertarian. It's on my website. But um, I'm uh, 53, and I'm from Louisiana originally, and I'm a lawyer in Houston now, and I've been interested in you know libertarian uh, thought ever since like high school when I read Ayn Rand, and uh, that deepened in college and then in law school, and I basically became an anarchist, Rothbardian, Austrian type uh, by the beginning of law school and started publishing some articles right when I started practicing law. So that's kind of my interest in it, and I've been heavily involved with the Mises Institute over the years, and so I've uh, been heavily influenced by the thought of Ayn Rand initially, but really in terms of systematic thinking, I'd say it would be uh, Mises and Rothbard and Hoppe. Now, did you have like any professors along the way or other students, or was it just completely on your own, just your own reading? Totally on my own at the time. I mean uh, – uh, a librarian told me to read The Fountainhead because she you know I liked uh, philosophy. And uh, now at the time it was a wasteland, right? No, I don't remember having hardly any libertarian, no libertarian professors ever. I was an electrical engineer anyway, so luckily the teachers weren't political anyway. Uh, and in law school, they were just kind of practical nuts and bolts teachers, mostly with a liberal or moderate conservative slant. But no, no libertarianism whatsoever. I had one professor that I became friends with who had a copy of Hayek's. Law, legislation, and liberty on his shelf, but he was a New York, uh, a New York lefty. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so no, I, I, I uh, things are different now. Of course, there was a Libertarian Party, but at the time, I was uh, hostile to the Libertarian Libertarianism and the party because Ayn Rand had such a virulent hatred for Libertarians. I kind of assumed she was right. It took me a few years to realize. Wait a second, these guys sound just like Ayn Rand's political, you know, theory. And so I remember in 1988, I was just starting law school. At LSU, and uh, I think Ron Paul came through campus on the um, on the LP uh, campaign for president, and I went to see it because I was curious. And uh, I remember I asked him a question about abortion because he was kind of cagey about it, so I thought I would nail him right. And 
So I detected something there, right? I, I was strongly pro-abortion at the time because I was a Randian, right? And Ron Paul, and most libertarians probably are too pro-abortion rights, but Ron Paul was not you know, not a typical libertarian. So um, I remember I actually talked to Ron Paul in 88 and just walked away a little puzzled. Yeah, I remember I was a student, an undergrad at Hillsdale College when Harry Brown came through when he was the LP candidate. And so, of course, Hillsdale was very, uh, you know, evangelical is not the right word, but there was a strong Christian presence on campus, even though the school officially, you know, was was, not, was non-sectarian. And so somebody was was trying to corner him, too. And, and yeah, I, I don't know what Harry Brown's ultimate views were in terms of the morality of it, but certainly he didn't think the federal government should be regulating abortion. And and some student tried to tried to corner him. And the way Harry Brown dealt with it was he said something like, if the federal government you know, declare or outlaws abortions, pretty soon men will be getting abortions. And then, you know, I got a chuckle out of everybody and then he just moved on to the next. So I thought that was a pretty good way of, of handling it. Like, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, um, I'm curious, did you get more out of Rand's fiction or nonfiction? Uh, probably the nonfiction um, in terms of libertarian stuff. Mm-hmm. The fiction, the more I thought about it, the more I've rejected the fiction. Um, the Fountainhead was what really got me going, probably because of its individualism. Um, I was sort of – I think I was adopted, and so I kind of never had this uh, – your your claim to worth is based upon your family lineage and all that. You know, It's mm-hmm. kind of a pull-yourself-up-from-your-own-bootstraps, self-made kind of mentality guy, and I was into philosophy, but I came from a little place in Louisiana. I never had anyone to talk to, so that stuff kind of lit me on fire and kind of – but in retrospect, The Fountainhead is like – it's a novel with quasi-rape in it, number one. And intellectual property terrorism. I mean, the whole plot is about this guy <laughs> who destroys someone else's property in a fit of rage that they used his ideas without his permission. So the whole thing is completely anathema to what I now believe. So I'm, I'm wondering what about the Fountainhead even attracted me. Now, Atlas Shrugged is much better, I believe, from a libertarian point of view, except it has a little bit of IP stuff in it with the reared and metal stuff and the patent stuff, which is confused. Mm-hmm. But Atlas Shrugged is way more libertarian, I think, than the Fountainhead. Um, but no, I think it was her, her nonfiction works for me. I mean, this was 19... Probably from 84 to about 89, I, I would go to the LSU library, and I would read the old Ayn Rand newsletters, and I remember Barbara Brandon's biography came out at the time. So I was devouring everything, listening to taped lectures by you know David Kelly and Bob Bidnato and uh, all these guys that you could get from the laissez-faire books catalog and things like that at the time because that's all there was. You know, it wasn't There was no internet, and I would actually – I corresponded by mail with David Kelly a little bit. Um, and uh, a few other people like that, Tibor McCann, my friend Jack Chris in Mississippi. So it was a wasteland back then. I mean, David Kelly wrote me back and he said – I was in law school, I remember. David Kelly says, well, your questions are good, and he gave me some nice answers. And he said, there's a guy in Jackson, Mississippi. Now, I was in Baton Rouge, so like he's telling me there's a guy f- four hours away from you who is similar age and has similar interest to you. You might want to contact him. I mean that's how bad it was. Yeah. So I made friends with, with a guy in another state in another city because – I finally found someone in the country, you know, who had a kindred interest in ideas. But it was kind of like that. But uh, yeah, yeah. Well, this yeah, the, the anecdote I tell just to try to get our younger listeners to to realize how bad it was. Um, I had read Human Action as a senior in high school. I'm not saying I understood it all, but you know, I, I did read it cover to cover, and I knew, oh, I got to be an Austrian economist. That's what I'm going to do for my life. And I went to Hillsdale College, and there, I think I was talking to Gary Wolfram. When he referred to it as to the man as Mises, 
And I was like, oh, because I had been calling them Ludwig von Mises the whole, up till then. <laughs> So, you know, I just, well, I'm 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 always surprised now. I'll still come across you'll hear someone in an interview or something, mm-hmm. someone who's like a fellow traveler, like a I don't like a Ben Shapiro type mm-hmm. or someone, and they'll mispronounce some of the they'll mispronounce Ayn Rand still or Mises, and I'm always surprised. I'm like, haven't you guys figured it out by now? Like, you surely couldn't have only heard about this from in 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 books. I mean, you must have heard someone say the name properly, but um. And I will say one other thing. I, I went into engineering because I would like technology, but I always – I think, honestly, my, my strongest abilities in was probably like the liberal arts, uh, economics, uh, history, English literature, that kind of thing. I don't regret not having done it, but in engineering, which I did well in and I liked for the precision, I always sort of had this hunger for the normative and the verbal way of talking. Mm-hmm. So that's why I love law school. When I went to law school, finally I was free from the confines of equations and all that. You know, mm-hmm. um, my son is like 15 now. He's a little bit like me and in his intellect, and I actually think he's going to do the liberal arts route. And uh, I don't, I don't regret it. But I think that's one reason I've I've written articles and things like that. I just I'm just I enjoy that more. I never actually practiced doubly engineering anyway. But um, anyway, so I'm saying I I didn't have the luxury in my undergrad of doing a lot of stuff that's conducive to this anyway it might have been for the better anyway i i don't know what you think about this but i you know i don't think not having taken official economics or oh i did take you know the basic economics engineers have to take um i remember the phillips curve made no sense to me and i was just then dabbling in austrian stuff but the the whole idea that unemployment and inflation are inverse relationships because i remember i told the teacher i said what if some space aliens murdered all the unemployed people overnight. I mean, it wouldn't be a good thing, but do you really think inflation would go up tomorrow? <laughs> and he mm-hmm. said, oh, no, the curve would shift. And I'm like, okay, well, then, yeah, you know. So I was skeptical of the, that mainstream approach, even in, even in college. I have to ask, I think Roger Garrison, I know he was engineering. Was he, do you know, was Roger Garrison electrical engineering as an undergrad? I have no idea. I, I, I'm pretty sure he was, because I know he... He said something along – I'm paraphrasing here, but I'm, I think I'm getting the spirit of this right. He said something like he was helped greatly in going into capital and interest theory and economics because with his engineering background, they had to make sure the units matched up in the equations. Ah, you know, like okay. th- that was something they, you know, they had to do. And, and that famously, in, you know, when it comes to economists talking about interest, you know, like just even the, the standard diagrams they'll use, the axes don't make any sense. Like in terms of the units, you say, well, what, what is that unit? And it's like it's got a dimension off or something. Well, and I could see that being the type of person who's an engineer or, or who could be an engineer, right, being smart or good at math would aid you in the modern study of economics anyway, right? Didn't you, didn't you go to NYU and it's very mathematical or something like that and it's difficult for some? Yeah, I, I, <laughs> for some yes, I did. But I think even beyond – so, yeah, obviously, you know, if, you have a, if you're a quantitative, let's call it, background, you're certainly going to need that to get a, a, an advanced degree at a – at a decent university nowadays, at least in the U.S. in economics, but you could have been a math major, and if you didn't have something like, yeah, I guess either physics or engineering, you wouldn't have had to like check your units in the equations. Like that might never never have come up, and so that that's what Garrison was was getting at that it was his engineering per se, not just the you know so like somebody could be a statistics major, you know, and never have had that issue. And so the things he was talking about in capital, where you know, really smart economists were making simplistic mistakes in terms of their, yeah, I mean, it was, it was sloppy and they could come back and they'd say, oh yeah, oh, yeah, right. It should be, you know, per, per year or something like that. But, but still it was, 
the way they draw dialogue, like Krugman did this a year ago, like his diagram, actually the axes as he labeled them didn't make any sense. Oh, I see what you mean. Um, well, on a, this is a slight tangent on, on this topic, but I, 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 being a patent lawyer, I actually ended up using my double E skills. I mean, it was essential for what I've done because I do laser patents and high, high tech electrical computer type patents. So my double E degree turned out to be more useful even as a lawyer than it is for a lot of engineers who go off into business or whatever. It was just serendipity. But I remember I wasn't one of these people who always wanted to be a lawyer. I just kind of was frustrated with I went to grad school for engineering at first, and I didn't really want to be an engineer. And so I kept going to school, partly to ride out the recession at the time and partly to just see what I wanted to do. So I thought about law school, and I, I walked across the LSU campus to the law center because I thought you had to have a pre-law degree. I didn't know anything about it. And I, I talked to the chancellor, and I said, do I need a pre-law degree? He says, no, all you need is a bachelor's degree in something. He says, but we don't recommend it for engineers because they just – they don't do as well in law school, which I learned since then is complete BS. It's huh. the opposite of true. But I think what he was thinking was a lot of engineers are not as good, let's say, as an English or history major at writing and expressing themselves and even communication. And he's got a point there. But if you can communicate well, then the engineering mindset is actually conducive. I think it's called – I would think of it as analytical because it's mm -hmm. problem solving. Yeah. Now, it's more – causal physics science-based, but it's still problem-solving analytical, and law school is too. It's just more verbal and uh, you know, uh, uh, legal concept type reasoning. And the first year of law school, the whole purpose is to break your mind and to make you think like a lawyer. And a lot of like English majors and humanities types have trouble with that because they're, they're used to all this open-ended inquiry. You know, mm -hmm. uh, there's, there's sort of struggle. They're forced to – no, you have to have a – you have to come up with an answer, solve this problem. So, but I did find that by pure luck, again, the one law school I chose, LSU, just for convenience, I think turned out to be one of the best for what I ended up doing in my libertarian career because it, it's a it's a civil law state. So it's, it's the only it's one of the only schools in the country that teaches the Roman law as well as the common law. And there's a lots of legal background that most lawyers discard after they start practicing and only use what they need for their specialty. But I love that stuff, right? And I, I now it's helped inform a lot of my ability to analyze um, uh, libertarian issues. That and Austrian economics, right? Austrian economics, Rothbardian radicalism, and the libertarian views, and kind of a knowledge of how the law works, both from the Roman law or the European civil law, I would say, and the American common law, the English common law, uh, has been helpful, uh, a lot, very helpful, I think, to helping figure out uh, solutions to some of these kind of thorny uh, problems that we have in libertarianism. Yeah, definitely. Before we, I want to ask you more about that, but just a quick little thing you, that you prodded my uh, memory on, saying how your background in EE helped you with you know laser patents and things. Mm -hmm. Similarly with me, I mean, I, th I thought I was going to be a theoretical physicist when I was like in seventh and eighth grade. I was, you know, reading stuff about Richard Feynman and, you know, that he was my mm -hmm. hero. And, oh my gosh, I totally got to do this. I'm going to unify general relativity and quantum mm -hmm. mechanics. That's what I was going to do. And, and then, of course, I got uh, fell in love with economics instead. But I've noticed, like, as I do a lot of work on energy issues and just goofy little things, like, like if some free market economist is talking about the Obama administration and its regulations, and they don't know the difference between power and energy, for example, when they're yep. talking about yep. you know yep. just little things like that, like what's a kilowatt hour versus, like, and it's just like ooh, you know. So anyway, good good stuff there. So can you? 
I understand the, the like the terms you use there, but for our listeners, that might be worthwhile if you elaborate a little on this distinction. So I think in libertarianism, those who have read it all on this stuff, in terms like, oh yeah, the common laws are is our big mm-hmm. favorite thing, and we need mm-hmm. to go back to that. But you're talking about there's a different type of law. So what's what's the difference, and, sure. and how why wouldn't we just like the common law? Well, okay, so there's a common understanding of what which most people don't have that. So most people are just kind of unaware. They just see they just they're they know that the governments have laws, you know. We have laws. Mm-hmm. They know what some of those laws are and they know that they're complicated. So that's the kind of normal understanding of law. It's just not really an understanding at all. But then if you go up one level, right, you ask your kind of moderately interested and intelligent person, they'll they'll basically say something like this, which I think is false. They'll say something like, Well, the common law, which came from England, right, is more case-based, and the European law is uh, more legislation-based. That's sort of a first approximation of the difference. In reality, here's what happened, to, and to simplify. First, you start with the Roman law, right, which is the law developed in Rome during the – well, I don't know, during the entire thousand years of Rome, but for several hundred years during the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire. Um, and that was codified in uh, Justinian's Institutes. Now, that law developed like a case law system, like a common law system actually, because it developed in part by people having a dispute, and they would go to these jurist consults or these judges, and they would come up with a solution. And over time, those solutions became the body of Roman legal principles. Okay, Some of those decisions were hypothetical decisions, though, like these legal experts, legal philosophers would just sit down in a room and say, now what if this happened? And they would come up with a result. So it was still case-based, but it was like hypothetical case-based. But in any case, that resulted in a body of law called the Roman law, right? which you can think of as a common law type system or a case law system. They didn't call it common law, but it's it's a case law system. Later on during the English uh, era, the British era, um, the English common law rose where decisions again were made by judges hearing cases between actual dis- parties, and they would come up with a solution, and those th- solutions became precedent, and other judges would build on them. And so over the centuries, a body of law developed called the English common law. So the English common law and the Roman law were similar in that structural way, and they came up with similar solutions. They just had different names and different conceptual uh, breakdowns. Now, in Europe, what happened was that Roman law was sort of lost and then found again because the, just, the institutes of Justinian were preserved and refound and all this. And they started being built upon by the church's canon law and by medieval law and the law merchant. So you had these European laws added to the Roman law principles. But eventually in the 1800s, there became a codification movement. It started sort of by Napoleon. You'll hear about the Code Napoleon or the Napoleonic Code, mm-hmm. the French Civil Code it's called. So basically Napoleon had a bunch of legal scholars put together all the accumulated European law, which was the Roman law plus the additions over the centuries, which is mostly a common law type system. And they codified it into these beautiful codes. The French Civil Code is just a beautiful thing to read. It's like a summary of the law. We have these in America called the restatements of the law. Those are privately done, but they're not legislated. They're just restatements of the law. Anyway, so the difference was in in Europe, they took this civil code, and then the legislature approved it as the law. So legislation or legal um, positivism, you could call it, became the primary source of law. So in, in Europe, they think of law now as emanating from the legislature, even though the original principles were based upon 
rules that accumulated in a common law or case law system over the centuries. In England, the common law was thought of as the predominant source of law. Judges are the source of law. Cases, courts and cases are the source of law. And only every now and then does the parliament come up with a statute, and that was seen as a derogation or an intrusion into the body of law, which is seen as mostly coming up from the courts. So that's how most people describe it. Now, in my view, in today's 21st century, after 200 years of growing legislation in America and in Britain, which has gradually taken over the, the function of the common law and in England as well, there's little huge theoretical difference anymore. Uh, so civil codes plus tons of statute, statutory law govern in Europe, and common law augmented by lots of legislation is the law in, say, the U.S., so they're both a mixture of lots of legislation mixed with common law. So that's sort of a, a summary. And by the way, so I've written a huge article on this in 1995 in the JLS on um, kind of talking about decentralization and law. Hayek wrote a lot about this, and a lot of uh, a lot of uh, economists, uh, fellow traveler economists to Austrians, have written on this uh, too. Well, yeah. So that I mean, where I know I came across it was you know Hayek's famous compilation, Law, Legislation, and Liberty, and just even. Up till that point, I think I had used the term law and legislation almost interchangeably, and then somebody made – I don't know if it was Hayek or he quoted somebody you know, earlier saying – so tell me if this is correct, Stefan. I'm curious. But the idea being it's a relatively recent thing in human affairs where political authorities had the hubris to think they could make the law. Yes, yes. You know, so of course there were laws you know, going way back, but – you know, no, no normal king or you know baron or whatever thought he had the ability or authority to to change what the law was. It was just, no, the law is the law. And, yeah, and I I think that this probably coincided roughly with the emergence of the modern state and the emergence of democracy. Uh, I think Hoppe in his book Democracy calls legislation democratic lawmaking. I mean. Before the rise of legal positivism, there was more of a natural law type thinking that judges were trying to discover the source of law and that you know even kings were subject to the law, this kind of idea. Um, but with just with the advent of the U.S. Constitution itself, we start thinking of, of law as being the, the decree of some authority and usually a civil authority, the governmental authority, you know, either speaking for the people or whatever. And we're so used to thinking of law that way now. So the, the bottom line for me as a libertarian – not even as an anarchist. You can forget – I mean anarchy is a whole different issue. I mean you can – I think the legislature is, for example, illegitimate because it's part of the state because mm -hmm. I'm an anarchist. But even if you're not an anarchist, you can still believe that the primary way that law should be, so to speak, made, I'd say developed, would be through a case, a case law system, not through legislation because legislation is just the decree of a body of people. It's just an edict. There's no reason to believe – that the decree of a bunch of guys on a committee, number one, would be compatible with justice, and number two, compatible with the previous body of law. In fact, you have statutes that are incompatible with each other all the time. There's just no reason. But if you have a case law system, number one, the judges can only make a decision when there's a real dispute between people. They can't, they can't just sit down and come up with a tax code or the Americans with Disabilities Law. It's always a dispute between two contestants over a piece of property, basically. And then the judge is tr at least trying to do justice, and they're somewhat bound by what has gone before. So the law develops in a more or less consistent fashion and in pursuit of justice. Sometimes makes mistakes, but I would say that the body of what we call private law developed in Rome 
and the common law in England is roughly compatible with what we libertarians uh, would say is, is just law. And here, yeah, let me just extend that a little bit. So, and this is the thing I do, um, one of my more popular lectures at Mises University is, uh, is called The Market for Security. I'll link to it in the show notes page, folks. Again, this is Bob Murphy's show, episode 39. And there I just, I, I point out that, look, in a, in a free society, you know, like according to Rothbardian principles, let's say, the property titles and whatnot, there's still going to be disputes. And there's a genuine need for or, or desire for some authoritative figure to come and render an opinion on who's in the right in this dispute. And even it's even in our language today, like what does the judge do? The judge writes an opinion. And so the idea is there's this existing body of law out there then in the particular facts of the case, the judge then applies the law to that and says, in my opinion, you know, here's how the law applies to this particular situation. And so that, you know, that showing that the, the judge is not in a sense making law, but nonetheless, there is a, a, a strange sense in which over the centuries, all of those decisions sort of create what the precedent is. And the analogy, I, can, you, and I'm, I didn't invent this analogy, somebody else did, but like with spoken language, you know, the way we speak nowadays as English speakers is different from how Shakespeare did. Right. And, and, and yet there's nobody in charge of the English language, yet there is a sense in which all the English speakers by their decisions, quote, define words. And yet like a dictionary just codifies what the definitions really are. It's not that the company Webster creates the definitions. If they put the wrong definition, they'd go out of business. So right. it's a weird thing like that. Yeah, and, and and by the way, one of the other classic work works on this. If anyone's interested, is, is Bruno Leone. His work, yeah. Freedom and the mm-hmm. Law. Now, he was an Italian legal theorist, and that's more the European tradition. But he, I think, he was strongly influenced by the decentralized kind of arguments, like of Hayek. Mm-hmm. Um, so, anyway, there are tons of works on this uh, in our tradition that are, are fascinating and. As a libertarian, I think it just means we need to be aware of the difference. When we say what the law is, it doesn't mean it's just. Now, a lot of conservatives of the natural law tradition, they get really hung up on this. There was a famous series of debates between H.L.A. Hart, a legal positivist so-called from England, and Lon Fuller, who's more of a natural law type. And these natural law types, you'll notice they want to capitalize the word law, and they want to say something like an unjust law is no law at all. And as a lawyer and as just a practical person living, I just don't think that's the proper way to look at it. We do have certain legally enforced prohibitions like the drug laws or tax laws, which we would say as libertarians are unjust. And if you want to quibble and say they're not really laws, okay, fine, but sometimes you're going to get charged with violating this thing and you need to hire a lawyer to defend you. You know, mm-hmm. So – I think it's better to recognize what the law is and then have an ideal form in our minds of what the law should be, and we hold up the legal positive law to the just law, and we that's how we determine whether the law is wrong or right. Um, even conservatives have a problem with this because they've even absorbed this positivist idea. You know, they can have you trouble. Define, they you, don't want to. Can I, stop, can yeah, let me just stop you a second. You, you're using the term legal positivism. Can you just define right. that in case someone doesn't know exactly what that means? Yeah, so and just to be clear, there's you, you'll hear of logical positivism, right? Which is more of a, a of an epistemological or a methodological approach in the in the social sciences, which is uh, you know the idea that the only truth it's like empiricism. It's the the only the only truths would be those that we can um, 
we can formulate as a as a as a falsifiable or testable law uh, a rule, right? And then we can go test it. And if it's if it's not testable, it's just uh, empty utterances. I don't agree with that. I don't think most libertarians do. There so, are so that's truths, logical yeah. positivism. That's logical. So I just want to distinguish it. Although I think there's some connections. Legal positivism is again the idea that that law is whatever the authority says or posits it is. So law flows from the from the government basically. As opposed to the idea that law is out there and we can discover it, okay, the more natural law idea. And I'd say libertarians are more natural lawyers in the sense that even if you don't believe in natural law or natural rights thinking, you still think that there's a standard of what the rules ought to be that can be justified by human reason. And you can't decree something to be wrong that's right, and you can't decree something to be right that's wrong. And that's what – so we don't think that the ultimate source of law is the state. Or is the is the legislature of the state? Mm-hmm. So, le- so legal positivism is this idea. We like again, everyone thinks of law as just being whatever. And not only that, you'll hear even libertarians sometimes who get confused by this modern parlance. They'll say something like, um, "Oh, like the income tax deniers, right?" They'll say it's not illegal to evade income taxes because show me the law. Now, when they say show me the law, they're, they're saying show me where it's written down. So that very mentality. Is the legal positivist idea like they're thinking of law as a set of statute books that the government has passed, and then they want to quibble over the words in the income tax code? But the point mm-hmm. is, they're thinking of law as whatever the government says the law is. Or they but, could say it wasn't properly ratified or something. Well, that would yeah yeah. And so, but a libertarian would say, show me where it's aggression for me to um, for not pay income taxes. Mm-hmm. I, I don't care what the government says their law is. The just law, the moral law, the libertarian law is is basically the codification of the non-aggression principle and property rights based upon that idea. Now, even can I even push you for a further distinction? Even if we had, you know, an ideal free society of the kind you would like to exist, and they had a you know free market and judges rendering opinions, uh, and over time it builds up what the the common law is. Even there, couldn't we imagine that they would have made mistakes and so the actual decision – and so clearly I think you would have to say just as a practical matter, well, this is what the law of the land is even though I personally think it's immoral. Yeah, and I think that that's a more difficult thing to answer. It's and people libertarians say, well, what what should the law be? And a lot of time, like I like the Randy Barnett's distinction in the structure of liberty where he distinguishes between abstract legal principles and concrete legal rules and – I think what would happen would be – well, first of all, it wouldn't necessarily be judges. I think it might just be private so-called arbitrators, which serve a similar function, right? Mm-hmm. And I also think you'd have a heavily decentralized society, so you'd have different regimes, different areas. And you know, you've written on this. Hoppe and others have written on this, the, the role of insurance companies and contracts. So I think law would heavily – tend to merge into custom and tradition as embodied by the practices of the people, as embodied in insurance practices, as in, 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 which would reflect the real risks and people's real preferences, um, and is embodied in the cultural values of different areas. And you could think of like all these different little mini cities around the world. They would all be interlinked by like an international law, and those have very abstract principles like pacta sunt servanda, which is the idea that agreements are to be respected. And even if you say that all the law in a given area is made by contract, you still have to have a general theory of contract mm-hmm. uh, to, to, to build that on. And to have a theory of contract, you have to have a theory of property rights. So I think just a basic, say, Lockean, libertarian 
view of property rights, which is embodied in the common law and the Roman law, because it has to be, because they have to be practical to work. Just the basic idea that basically people can use things that they find that are unowned. People get to keep what they what they own without being molested or stolen from, like stealing is wrong. Property rights are good. People shouldn't enslave or harm each other. I mean, just the very basic rules of contracts should be respected. All those things interlock together, and they would be the abstract rules that would serve the basis, like the underlying ground, what Hans Kelsen, the legal theorist, would maybe call would call grund norms or ground norms or basic norms. And then on top of that, you would have more refined rules based upon solutions that the judges and arbitrators have found over time, maybe in a given region, maybe internationally. Then you'd have sort of treaties or contracts between areas. You'd have contractual arrangements and insurance-based incentives and effectively laws in different regions. I mean, you could imagine that nuclear weapons are not technically outlawed by a statute like they are now, but they're outlawed because of the prohibitions, because of the risk, and because of because you won't be able to get insurance for it and your neighbors aren't going to want to live next to you or allow you into their restrictive covenant area. You know, I mean, you could see how it would result in prohibitions that some people would say are not libertarian, but they're libertarian in their uh, in the means that we arrived at them or in the process that got us there. Yeah, I, re- I really like that. Just to to chime in, that yeah, that that was what I did in, in my booklet, Chaos Theory, was I was saying, you know, it's tricky when you're doing just the armchair reasoning that. You know, people who are against gun control and the arguments they use there actually, you know, if you took it to its logical conclusion, would mean everybody could stockpile hydrogen bombs in their basement. And hey, and until you initiate aggression on somebody, who's the government to come in? And clearly that's kind of crazy. And so, yeah, in a, in a totally free market, private property society, if you're like living in a, an apartment building, just like they could say, you, you can't have, uh, you know, you, you can't do certain things to the property. You can't you know, take the toilet out or whatever with the landlord's permission. Oh, by the way, you can't have a hydrogen bomb. Well, and it's it. a little bit unfair for our critics to demand that we predict omnisciently what the world would look like when the reason we can't know is because the government has monopolized all these fields and totally changed it from the way it would have developed. So mm. all we can do is guess uh, when someone says, well, tell me exactly what the educational system would look like if we get rid of public schools. I'm like, well, I don't know. <laughs> we have some idea, but we don't know exactly. And they'll say, well, how, what about a poor family? How would they? It's like, well, I, I don't know. Maybe if we made the political reforms necessary to get rid of the public school system, it would be because everyone got more capitalist and more free market oriented. So everyone's richer anyway, and it wouldn't even be a problem by then. I mean, you can't just answer from your armchair all these questions, right. um, unfortunately. So all we can do is try to advocate incrementally moving towards more freedom. And so you, then you let this – I don't like this kind of Hayekian term, this discovery process work so that we can discover through the decentralized workings of the legal system and the market what practices actually work for people that, and that they also perceive as just. And I know most of my listeners are going to be high-fiving you in the air in here, but for those who think that that's a cop-out, I mean, and this is standard rhetorical ploy, but just to say, okay, well, you know, imagine the old Soviet Union and they bring you in as an advisor and you say, you guys are really should free up your agriculture, you know, have, have private farmers grow all the food and deliver it and you, you know, you won't have so many famines all the time. And, and then, you know, Stalin says, okay, well, if I do that, tell me exactly where all the grocery stores will be. And, well, you know, and well say, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, one, one analogy I've given is uh, in the intellectual property thing when people say, well, if you get rid of copyright, how are 
how are artists going to make money? And I say, well, let's let's take the slavery case. Like we have slavery in the U.S., and some abolitionist says, I want to abolish slavery, and someone says, but who's going to pick the cotton? It's like, okay, that's an interesting question to ask, but is your question supposed to be an argument for slavery? Seriously? Do I have to tell you who's going to pick the cotton before we abolish slavery? So sometimes you have to have a go for justice, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, that's what we're looking for. And you know, to be fair, I've done my share of armchair theorizing, and so have all of us. Uh, so I just like to give the caveat that just because I can't answer your question perfectly doesn't mean that we don't have an idea of what the right policy ought to be. Right. Well, this flows in naturally to something I wanted to bring up, unless you'll be more eloquent about it. But I remember a while ago I read something where you were taking on the the critic who says, yeah, you know, libertarianism or anarcho-capitalism is Gruden theory. But we're never going to see anything remotely like that in my lifetime. So let you know, I'm going to focus more on uh, reforming the Republican Party or blah blah blah. So, w- what was your response to that kind of mentality? Well, I just think that we need to be clear that there are different, say, different types of libertarians or different reasons we're interested in it. You have activist libertarians, and you have sort of theoretical ones, you could say. And then you know, it's just a different intellectual inquiry. If the question is strategically or or tactically, what can we do to achieve liberty? Or maybe just a predictive question. When are we going to have liberty or when are we going to have more liberty or what's the – I mean those are interesting questions, but they're different. And someone who's so engaged in activism that their entire focus is on trying to do something in their lives to achieve more liberty, let's say, or even to achieve total liberty. Um, when you say something like there's no right to do this, you go, what good is it? It's sort of like the Marxist saying, uh, you know, tell me about your capitalism. Uh, someone on an empty stomach can't hear your arguments, You know that kind of – just anti-intellectual almost, like they're results-oriented, and we're trying to say – we're trying to uh, use reason to analyze what the right result is. So my point there was – and it's in the paper called uh, uh, What It Means to Be an Anarcho-Capitalist. Uh, and I simply said, look, you can't refute when, – when I say the state is unjust, like when, I'm, when I say I'm an anarchist, I mean I think the state is unjust. It's criminal. And then they'll say, well, who's going to build the roads? It's like, well, yeah, but see, your question is a practical question that doesn't really respond to my assertion. So my assertion is that the state is unjust, and the reason it's unjust is because it commits aggression, and I believe aggression is wrong. And I have some reasons for that, but that's my basic argument. And so when you tell me that the state won't go away, all you're saying is that we're going to have crime. Mm-hmm. You know, Almost every decent person, even someone arguing with you about anarchy… We will all agree that murder, for example, is wrong or rape. We all think it's wrong and a crime, but none of us thinks that they will e- they, either practice will ever be completely abolished for the entire future of the human race. Even if we achieve utopia, on occasion, there will be someone who decides to break the rules. So the very fact that some kind of crime is going to happen doesn't mean that it's not a crime. It doesn't mean that we don't condemn it and recognize it as a crime. So that was my point. So my point was… Being an anarchist simply means, number one, you're opposed to aggression, and number two, you recognize that the state necessarily commits aggression. So if, you, if you're not an anarchist, you either have to favor aggression, which most people are reluctant to do, or you have to say that the state doesn't necessarily have to commit aggression, like which is Robert Nozick's argument, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and what most people will do is they will, they will equivocate. They'll say something like, 
um, they'll say, well, no one's completely against aggression. After all, we favor putting criminals in jail. So then they start using the concept of violent defensive force or responsive force. That's aggression too, which is not what we mean, right? So they're, they're, they're equivocating on the word aggression. But if you nail them down and make them be consistent with their terms, they will finally reluctantly admit, yes, I'm against aggression too. Now, some of them won't. Some of them will say, we're going to have aggression in the world no matter what. Like I view these guys as sort of like uh, norm utilitarians in a sense. Like they're against aggression, but they don't think it's possible to get rid of it, so they want to minimize aggression. So they think in anarchy you'll have more aggression than you will with a minimal state or even with a, a moderately small state. So they think that the level of aggression that the government commits, like from bad laws, jailing people that are really innocent or from mistakes or from taxing people or conscripting people they think that that level of aggression is less than the aggression that would that would occur on a private free market without a state i can actually respect that argument i don't think they can make that argument out but most people don't get that sophisticated most people just say well Sometimes you have to break an omelet to break some eggs to make an omelet. You know, it's kind of the Marxian idea that yeah, sometimes some, you have to, the little people have to suffer for grander causes. So my point is this: to be in favor of the state, you you do have to either show that the state doesn't commit aggression, or you have to come out in favor of aggression. Um, so that's it. So it's not a prediction about when anarchy will be achieved any more than opposing murder is a prediction that we will achieve a murder-free society. So that's the main argument in that piece, which a lot of people have liked. Yeah, and actually, as after I asked it and you went into it, I realized I I did a steel man argument there. I, I made the initial person more reasonable than what I meant to because people, you're right. What I have seen people do and what your article clearly blows up, I think, is a person who says, because we're not going to achieve anarchy in my lifetime – the study of anarchy, you know, anarchy itself is, is a stupid goal or it's a stupid thing. It's not worth, you know, arguing about, which, as you point out, that's, you know, somebody said, hey, rape is wrong. And somebody else said, oh, yeah, well, you know, frat guys are going to keep doing that. So, you know, your position's wrong. Like that wouldn't make right. any sense at all. Yeah. OK, well, why don't we get into perhaps your your most famous um, contribution here? And that's the the fact that you are against intellectual property. And so it's just the, the background here. Um I think your essay on that, or is it a booklet? Is that what we call it? Like, or did you conceive of it as an essay, or was it? It, it was. It was just a long article yeah. in JLS, and they pub, they republished it as I call. They call it a book, but it's a mono, I call it a monograph, okay. maybe. So yeah, it's it's just called against IP, right? Against intellectual property. Yeah, and, uh, and that, that was Hoppe's Hoppe's title. I gave it at an Austrian scholars conference in like 1999. Mm-hmm. I delivered it as a paper, and. I submitted it to the JLS, and I said, Hans, I don't know what to call this. He goes, just call it against intellectual property because he's so (laughs) German. I mean, he called his society the Property and Freedom Society. I remember we were discussing names for it when he came up with this in 2009, and we were going to call it the Ararat Society because it was going to be in Turkey because of where his wife had a hotel, and it's close to Mount Ararat. Mm -hmm. And that was in contradistinction to the Mont. Pellerin Society, oh, right, in right, Switzerland. Right. Mm-hmm. So they were going to call it the Mount Ararat Society, but it had a little bit too much of a biblical Old Testament sort of connotation. So anyway, mm-hmm. it says, just called Property and Freedom Society. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like the yeah. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> um, okay, so I, I have to just you know acknowledge that, that that essay is one of the single most influential in the sense of like that one thing. I went into it with one set of views. And then not only did you sort of challenge 
with a frontal assault, like to my whole foundation in terms of how I'd been thinking about intellectual property. But then you even dealt with, you know, the obvious objections that would come up. And I was just by the end of it, I was like, yeah, he's right. Holy cow. So, so for a, someone who is a, uh, you know, b- believes in private property and, but, but thinks, yeah, I mean, just, you know, I'm, I'm against theft and, and people just like, if I want to be able to plant crops, you know, somebody needs to own that land. Otherwise, you know, what's the incentive and it's just and blah, blah, blah. Right. By the same token. Yeah. If I, if I create a song, I mean, that's my property. If somebody can come along and steal it, you right. know, what, what's, what's going on? That's unjust and it, it hampers productivity. So what's going on here, Stefan? Well, let me, and I can put this in context. Uh, it relates to a lot of things. Uh, the way this came about was, I, I remember I was in high school, maybe, or whenever I read Ayn Rand's, uh, I think, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, which probably was in high school or early college. She's got this thing on patents and copyrights. And, you know, I think Ayn Rand was right on so many things in her way, especially for the time, but her two big mistakes were her foundation of rights, basing it on intellectual property and on being opposed to anarchy. And I can forgive her for that one. But – and this is a true also of Galambos. Galambos' entire theory of rights is based on a huge, insane, insanely wrong, spectacularly wrong, basically, intellectual property theory. Lysander Spooner, by the way, uh, is, has a huge, insane essay on intellectual property. He's even worse than the others. He wanted them to last forever. In antiquity, I'd say the people who were best on this was Benjamin Tucker, who Wendy McElroy has explored and pointed out. Um, but even t- even Benjamin Tucker was right for kind of the wrong reasons, partly. Like he's he's against monopoly, mm-hmm. right? So he almost all he was also skeptical of land monopolies. So for the same reasons, he's against patent monopolies and copyright monopolies. So it's like not quite the right argument. So what happened was I read this in. And you say early, when I was early libertarian, and it, something about Rand's argument didn't it didn't resonate with me like her other arguments did because patents and copyrights only last for a finite time, like say seventy auth, life of the author plus seventy years for copyrights, say roughly a hundred years, and about seventeen years for patents. And Ayn Rand had to she either had to say that they should last forever, which would I think be absurd and kill off the human race. That's what Spooner wanted. Um, or she had to say that, no, they should be limited for a time. So she had to come up with an argument to kind of justify the current system. Can I, can I which, stop you real fast? Yeah. What, remind yeah. us, what's the difference between patent and copyright? Yeah, so intellectual property is a term that we use now to refer to several types of laws, which have to do with creations of the intellect. So that would be patent law, which covers inventions. Okay, It's, it's basically an inventor of a new machine or a process that's practical, um, like a gizmo, like a mousetrap. They have a, a monopoly on making that for like 17 years. And mm. copyright covers artistic or creative works like a, like a novel or a painting or a song um, and, or a movie nowadays. Um, and then there's trademark, which is uh, the right to your reputation in form of a mark, like a business's trademark, You know their name. Like a logo or not the logo? Yep, logo. Okay. It could be logo, brand name, um, product name, product line name. Basically, it's a mark that you use to identify the source of goods. Okay. So I can't I can't open up a, a hamburger place called McDonald's with golden arches. That's violate a trademark. That would violate McDonald's trademark. Okay. Now you could have a, say McDonald's hardware store if it wasn't confusing. Gotcha. To mm-hmm. if it, there's laws on that too. I'm opposed to all these, by the way. And then there's trade secret law, which most people it's all these are arcane and very subtle and hard to understand if you haven't practiced in it as a lawyer. And so it's it takes a while to even explain why I would be against trade secret law because most libertarians are like what's wrong with keeping a secret? It's like 
there's nothing wrong with keeping a secret. That's not what trade secret law does. Trade, trade secret law gives the gives a company so, who someone else has discovered their secret the right to go to a court and get an injunction from the court to tell that mm-hmm. person to keep quiet about it, even though they're not an employee of the. I mean, yeah. so it, it, it's, there's reasons to oppose it. Okay, it's kind of like big, if you're saying, "Oh, I'm I'm a libertarian. I'm against uh, laws prohibiting heroin use." You're like, "What's what's wrong with refraining from using heroin?" <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, so like it's one of those kind of confusions. Um, and trademark, they're like, well, what's wrong with me? Uh, or, or people make this mistake. They'll say, well, if you don't believe in ownership of um, of your labor, like which I can get into, uh, someone else has to own it. So you believe in slavery. It's like, no, it's, it's, you have to understand property theory. It's not a type of thing that can be owned. But anyway, so I was always uneasy with her argument because she was just – she came up with this kind of ad hoc argument for why it makes sense to have copyrights last for a limited time. Like in your novel, and, and why it makes sense for patents to last for a limited time. And I'm thinking, like, that's not like natural law thinking. That's not like objective. There's no way the government can get that right. There's no way we can even know there is a right sort of peak in the middle. So I was always uneasy with that, and I kind of put it to the side. But in law school, I started thinking more. And then when I started practicing law in 1992, I started practicing patent law. And so I started thinking more and more about this. So I started reading tons of stuff and just trying to figure it out. I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to solve this problem. I'm going to explain the real argument for patent and copyright, right? But finally, I realized, oh, <laughs> I keep running into uh, uh, dead ends because it's unjustified. The whole thing is wrong. And, and, and figuring that out required like sort of a unique set of other understandings, which only basically Austrian-influenced and somewhat legally savvy – Somewhat academic, you know, and very radical libertarian people could even think of, which is one reason I think that once you put these things, this is one of the few areas that's very difficult and people have gotten very wrong, and that it's somewhat easy to make a lot of progress persuading people to open their eyes. Like the abortion thing is like impossible, mm-hmm. anarchy is very difficult. Um, but this one, I have had lots of people over the years give me your response, and that's a good thing. And I don't take full credit for this, by the way. I think I put it together better than anyone else has, partly because I know IP law and I know how to speak the language and really not mangle the different arguments. Mm-hmm. But I would say if you look at the history of this, uh, again, Benjamin Tucker was one of the first to start getting it right. Then basically uh, Sam Conkin and Wendy McElroy were really the first modern libertarians to start seeing this really carefully and really properly, especially Wendy. And then after that, I would say Tom Palmer made the next uh, – Big, huge leap, and he basically is the one who I think – him with, with Hoppe and Mises and some of Rothbard's stuff, mostly Hoppe and Mises with their emphasis on scarcity and human action, right? Uh, with Tom Palmer's kind of combination of, of this stuff um, helped me to start unlocking it and seeing it properly. But I think Tom Palmer's works in 89 or something like that, uh, he had two articles, were just uh, probably the beginning of the modern clarification of this issue. Can I stop you for a second? Just to be clear, yeah. are you saying all those people were also against IP or that they had yes. necessary yes. building yes. blocks and that you – Yes, they were. Sam Conkin was against – he was against copyright, and his thought would, would lead you to thinking that. Um, Wendy, Wendy was against copyright and patent. I mean they weren't quite as full-throated as I was and didn't give quite the exact same arguments, but yes, they were they were IP. It was more sketchy and shorter. But yeah, I'd say really it was Sam Conkin. And Wendy learned a lot from Benjamin Tucker back in the late 1800s, I guess. So 
if you want to trace the history, it'd be Benjamin Tucker, Sam Conkin, Wendy McElroy, and then Tom Palmer, and then and then my stuff sort of built on top of uh, all that, and mm. is a li- probably more comprehensive, and even more uh, full throated. But this, to me, this was just a puzzle I had to solve, and it was just you know I started going to the Libertarian, the Mises Scholars, the Austrian Scholars Conference, sorry, at Auburn in like 1995, right after Rothbard died, and I would present. You know these little twenty-minute papers, and they were all like just puzzles I was trying to work out that weren't addressed in a rigorous, satisfactory way to me, and which I had the ability to sort of do because I knew Roman law, I knew common law, and I knew libertarian theory, and I knew uh, some economics, and I knew how to just be logical and try to figure it out and put it together. So I wrote on contract theory, and I wrote on this law, uh, this decentralized law stuff. Um, I wrote on rights theory, which is this stuff that was inspired by Hoppe's argumentation ethics, which you and I have disagreed on, mm-hmm. um, and a causality, the theory of causation in the law. So several areas of interest to me, and IP was just one of them, but not even my most favorite. I don't even – I'd never really enjoyed – I liked it at first, but I'm not, I'm not in love with the practice of IP law. I probably should have chosen something else. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I don't love IP theory itself, although figuring it out and explaining it probably thousands of times by now to people has forced me to gradually clarify my understanding of economics, property law, contract, libertarian. I would probably write that paper a little differently now, but I don't disagree with anything in it. I'd probably emphasize the term rivalry or rivalrousness instead of scarcity because scarcity, I see now how that misleads people or allows equivocation because they'll take scarcity to mean lack of abundance mm-hmm. whereas in economics we mean something we we mean something more like the property of a thing that it can't be used by more than one person at a time rivalrousness right, right. Uh, I might be a little bit harder on trademark than I was then I was a little bit more lenient but the two the two worst are copyright and patent and I think the reason why a lot of libertarians even, have been in favor of this and get confused on it is it's been touted and heralded as part of the part of the free market system, right? It's part of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, it's part of the West. It's part of capitalism. It's been part of American society since since the Industrial Revolution, and it's called a property right. It's called an intellectual property right. Uh, and we all believe that creativity and, and, and innovation is good. So it just seems like it must be part of of the fabric of free market and libertarian compatible laws that we that we favor but it just doesn't make any sense in the end you know it's kind of a mixture of incentive arguments with government meddling with market failure arguments with rewarding the creator like a dessert argument like someone who creates something other people benefit from should be rewarded so all these kind of confusing ideas meld together and people just accept it of course, the truth is it's there because it benefits certain special interests, and it was passed in part because of corrupt government practices in the past, which I can go into, and then it was adopted by certain people who could take advantage of it, and they fought to keep it ever since, and then they came up with a propaganda campaign to call it intellectual property instead of government monopoly privilege, which is what it was. So, And then people got used to it, and it's hard to disentangle. So, um, so why, why don't we… Yeah, why don't we start though from scratch? So you're right. Obviously, the historical development of it and so on, just like with the you know the, the what do you call it trust busting or whatever. When you yeah. go and look and see how the these uh, suits to, to break up so called monopolies actually come from the competitors and things. But in terms of just pure theory, somebody who's never read your article and they've never heard someone make a, a, a case like this, 
you know, I, I know I have a lot of musicians listening, and and why yeah. why can't they own their song the way right. somebody who builds a TV owns the TV? Yeah, and I've to be cl- I've, I have to clarify this over and over that even if you don't agree with me, just be aware that I personally am driven by a love for the mind and the intellect. I value creativity. I'm in favor of property rights, capitalism, free markets, and that's the reason I oppose patent and copyright. So it's not because I'm some lefty who doesn't like exploitation or profit or rewarding inventor. It's not that. So just trust me. I could be wrong, but it's not based upon a socialist or a lefty motivation. Um, so just a thumbnail sketch. You know, you basically have humans. <laughs> humans emerge, right? Um, and like all animals, they employ means, which, which is a means of human action concept. We use scarce resources in the world to achieve our goals. So human action is basically just the use of a scarce resource that you can use to causally intervene in the affairs of things to change the outcome of what's going to happen in the future if you don't intervene. This is just very basic. This is praxeology. This is Mises, right? So even Crusoe alone on an island with no other people around, he uses scarce resources to achieve goals. But he also has knowledge. If he didn't have knowledge, he couldn't act. So there's two basically – there's two fundamental ingredients to all human action. That is access to or availability of scarce resources, means, and knowledge about the way the world works. So you have to have some knowledge about what's coming that makes you uneasy, and you want to change that. And you have to have some knowledge about how to change it. That's the knowledge of the causal laws of the world. So if you feel rumbles in your stomach and think you're going to get hungry, that thought displeases you, and you want to stave off being starved. Mm -hmm. So you're imagining the future, and you have some ideas about how to stop yourself from being hungry. You know you have to get food. That's a So this knowledge guides your action, and then your action might be to go fashion a fishing net or a spear. And catch a fish and eat it. That would be the use of means guided by knowledge. So this is just man acting alone. And your body is also another scarce. It's a way you intervene in the world. You use your body to act and you employ other things, tools, right, to act. This is just the basic framework. Then when other people, when you're in society, there's a benefit to being in society. You can trade with other people and you can interact with other people. You can learn from other people. So you can you can get resources from other people. You can get consumer resources or, or intermediate resources, you know, tools, and you can get knowledge. So you, it benefits everyone. But with other people, there's a possibility of, of conflict over these scarce resources because they're scarce. Only one guy can use this fishing net at a time. And if I have the fishing net and someone takes it, I can't use it to accomplish my means. So there's a possibility of violent conflict. And therefore, the concept of ownership or property rights emerges, which says that um, it's a rule specifying who gets to who has the right to use this resource in the case of a dispute, and those rules naturally become the natural law rules that we libertarians favor and that Locke favored. Basically, you own your body, which they say you own yourself, which is a misleading way of putting it, um, and you own these resources that you homestead or that you acquire by contract. So that's basically libertarianism and the private law that developed is basically finders keepers mm-hmm. right and contract that's i mean anthony DeJesse has a book choice contract consent it's very it's some very simple principles richard epstein has this six you know six common law rules for the world i mean the basic rules are very simple and they inform a property system so 
when you live in society, to be able to be secure and able to use these scarce means, that means to have successful action and to live a good life, you need to be secure in the ability to use these means. And that means you either have to have the ability to defend it yourself, or you have to live in a society where people, by and large, respect those rights. And that's what happens in society. Most people voluntarily respect it because they get benefit out of the system, and it's enforced by a, some kind of legal system combined with your own self-defense, right? You put a lock up, you have your shotgun, and you can go to your neighbors for help, and you can go to a court if you have to, and you have deviance every now and then. But that's what a property right system is. The property right system is the emergence of a set of practical rules to solve the problem of conflict when there's a world of scarcity. So the entire purpose of property rights is to determine who owns what in a just, fair way when there's a possibility of dispute. And as you can see, this applies only to the scarce means of action, not to the knowledge that guides your action, because these knowledge can spread the world over, which is exactly why the human race has progressed, because every century, every generation, every day, the body of human knowledge scientific knowledge, technical knowledge, philosophical knowledge builds and grows, and everyone can dip into it and learn from it. And that knowledge magnifies the efficiency of our actions. You could say that the amount of scarce stuff on the earth is maybe finite in a sense because there's only so many atoms. But the amount of ideas is potentially infinite, and that's why we're getting richer every generation because our technical knowledge is getting better. But property rights only apply to the things where there can be a dispute over it because the property right always answers the question when there's a dispute between two or more people over who has the right to use this one thing that only one of them can use who gets to use it okay now we have a set of answers to that but that's just property law itself but that's what property rights are mm-hmm. now that would be the case in a purely just society a private law society as hoppe calls it right or an anarchist capitalist society a free a totally free market um, when a state comes on the scene, of course, they intervene in certain ways. They have to support themselves with taxation, which is taking someone's property without their permission, which is a type of theft. But people tolerate a certain amount of that to get the protections of the king and et cetera. Anyway, now, what happened was, let's say, starting in the Middle Ages, around that time, time of the law merchant, kings and monarchs increasingly would – they would on occasion practice a type of favoritism or protectionism even. So this is where patents come from. So monarchs would grant someone what they call a, a letter patent, and patent it means open in Latin, patente. So it was an open letter, like the king would write, Sir Francis Drake is the only guy who can be a pirate on the high seas, mm-hmm. or this or this guy, this tea company, you know, they have the monopoly right to do this in this colony. So a patent was basically a monopoly privilege granted by the king, and then in exchange, the people that got it would be loyal to the king. They might help the king collect taxes, this kind of stuff. So patents were basically just privilege grants by the crown. Everyone knows this. This is like not disputed history. Um, At the same time, before the printing press, it was hard to produce printed works. This would be the domain of copyright. Um, So the church and the state kind of combined together could easily control what works could be printed. Right? They want it's thought control. They only want you know the Catholic version of the Bible to be printed or whatever. You know, uh, no, no pornography. Right. Um, when the printing press came about, it threatened this monopoly, right? Because the, now you could have a river of books being printed easily for the masses. And so the government, of course, got into the game. And, and like in England, they, they had this thing called the Stationers Company. I can't remember the years, 50, whenever the printing was, 1500s, I think. So they had like this 100 something year charter. 
so during that time, if you wanted a book published, you had to go there, and they're only going to allow certain books to be printed with the approval of the church and the crown, right? So that's what co- copyright came from this basically purely censorship. It was control of thought. In the meantime, this publishing industry started emerging, and they got used to the fact that they were the ones who had this basically monopoly on publishing books. So go back to the patent thing. In 1623, the abuses got so bad that parliament passed what they call the statute of monopolies. You can look it up, statute of monopolies. See, they they were honest in their language back then. Like we used to have a department of war in the U.S. Now mm-hmm. it's the Department of Defense, right? <laughs> <laughs> they call these things monopolies, and they limited, they circumscribed the ability of the crown to grant monopolies, like all these privileges he was giving, like on who can sell playing cards in the town or sheepskin or whatever. But they made an exception. They said, but if it's an invention, like if it's a, if it's a useful new innovation or invention. The crown can still grant them subject to some regulations. So patents for inventions escaped this prohibition. Okay, So you've had the statute of monopolies. We started the basis of modern patent law, and then it was emulated by the United States in 1789 when we ratified the Constitution, and it had a patent clause in there. So that's how it started. It started as grant of the government of monopoly protectionist grants, which basically protected people from competition, and that's what they do now. Copyright in 1709-10, Queen Anne, when she was under pressure to renew this stationer's company's charter, under pressure from the publishers and from authors, published uh, – they, uh, the parliament stat, uh, enacted the statute of Anne, 17 – I think it's 1709, but it was ratified in 1710. But anyway, that's the origin of modern copyright. So that basically on paper granted the right of copyright to the authors. But as a practical matter, the authors still had to go to the publishers to get a book published. They didn't have Xerox machines. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they didn't have photocopiers. So, so the publishers just turned around and kept their, their monopoly going, and which has lasted until this day. And it's only now being broken down by Amazon and the internet and self-publishing. This is why we've had a publishing industry all these years because of the legacy of the censorship system, right? So um, – an author would have to sign all their rights away to the publisher or the an employee who works for hire as someone authored uh, hired to paint or to compose they, as a practical matter they would have to assign their rights to the publishers anyway so it ended up being just like it was under the stage until just recently i mean m- remember prince put slave on his cheek for several years because of the horrible way he was bound by his his label's record contract and this has happened so many times, but now, thanks to the internet, we're finally freeing – we're seeing the crumbling of the legacy publishing industry. We're seeing the crumbling of the ability to to really strictly enforce copyright law, and my hope is that 3D printing will be the analog of that for patents. Like eventually, people will be able to make objects without permission. You'll get an encrypted file that'll have the design for some device and you'll just make it even though someone has a patent on it. So mm-hmm. my hope is that technology will help us to basically evade and, and, and render basically uh, moot uh, the copyright and patent system. And the reason I really am worked up about these is I think that really copyright is horrible. It, it basically censors free speech, prevents people from publishing books if they want to, prevents documentaries from incorporating photographs and footages that that some rights holders don't want included. And patents are even worse because they basically impede the development of of technical innovation, technical uh, invention, because someone is not going to bother to 
innovate in a field if they won't be able to sell a product because someone has a monopoly on it. So it slows down the rate of innovation. And I think that slows down the progress of the human race. And it, it basically kills people because we would have more wealth. We'd have more life-saving drugs. We'd have more uh, amazing inventions. Um, so I think these things are very, very harmful to the human race. They're not just abstract problems. And the other problem is it's insidious. Unlike, say, the drug war or, 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 or war itself or taxes, which most people, especially most libertarians, even if they're menarchists, they can kind of see that taxes are wrong. It's mm -hmm. wrong to put someone in jail for drugs. But it's harder to persuade them about IP because it's called intellectual property, and it's and we think of the intellect as good, and innovation is mm -hmm. good, and creativity is good. So that's one reason it's an insidious um, problem. And I mean, you can see even now, Trump and these guys are using it, China stealing our IP as an excuse to limit free trade. So it has lots of tentacles in 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 lots of laws. Hey, folks, let's take a break from my interview with Stefan Kinsella to talk about. You know, I'm going to do something new here. I'm not going to try to sell you something. How's that? I'm just going to encourage you, if you haven't ever read it, to read my pamphlet, Chaos Theory. Two essays on, what is it? Private Law and Private Defense. Something like that. I forget what the subtitle is. And uh, it's good stuff. So you you can buy it if you want to, but the Mises Institute also has the PDF version up there. And I will also link in the show notes page to my longer journal article on private law and military defense that was in the journal Libertarian Papers that Stefan is the founder of. So for those links, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 39, and you'll see the links to my writings on private law and private military defense. That's great stuff, Stefan. Let me just sort of crystallize, I think, what some of the main um, points you made there, just again, because for someone who's never heard this before, I know it takes a while to get over it. And so I think you, in terms of just the justice of it and the nature of property rights you're saying, and that has to be concerning physical, tangible things. And, you know, somebody can, I own a, a pizza. If somebody takes a piece of my pizza away, that's one fewer slice I can eat. Whereas if I create a song and then somebody quote steals my song, that doesn't actually limit what I can do with it. If they, if they really just copied it. You know, if they, if they broke into my house yeah. and they, you know, and they took the hard drive that it was on, then, you know, maybe that, but, yes. but it's not that they stole my song, it's they stole my hard drive. That's the issue. And so is that the fundamental difference in terms of why intellectual, like it's, 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 it's not merely that you're saying like it's immoral, you're saying it's incoherent. Like it doesn't even make sense to say you can own an idea that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So, so the word stealing is actually wrong. So people use that. They'll call it theft stealing or even the word piracy, but literally the, those are not going on. It's called copying or learning or competition or emulation. If you see someone doing something successful in the market and you learn from them that this is a good thing to do and you start emulating them, this is why we have competition. So I think the reason it's incoherent is that I think – I wouldn't say that owning ideas is wrong. I'd say it's literally impossible. So it's, it's it basically every intellectual property law is a disguised transfer of ownership to tangible things. So, for example, if if I have a patent on – making an, a smartphone with rounded edges, which Apple does, and I can sue you to prevent you from making a smartphone with rounded edges, the court is in effect granting me a property right in the other – in the competitor's factory. Mm -hmm. So you have what I would call in the law calls as a negative servitude or a negative easement. 
sort of like when you have a neighborhood with a restrictive covenant arrangement, which everyone has agreed to, where every, no one can paint their house orange. In effect, all your neighbors have a partial property right in your house in that they have a veto over one way that you can use it. Mm-hmm. But that's contractually granted. Um, what the patent system does is it grants this negative right, this negative easement, or this negative servitude. It grants it to the patent holder, even though the person with the property burdened by it never agreed to it. So it's a taking of property. So basically, when you say there's a right to an idea, it's just a way that the, that the law, in effect, gives someone ownership over other people's property. Mm-hmm. Um, so Roger can, Wong, can, can like, I? Yeah. yeah, let me no, just mention because yeah, that's a fundamental point. So. I, I write a short story, you know, in Microsoft Word on my laptop, and I go and I apply for copyright protection. And so I, I take you to be saying, Stefan, rather than viewing it as, ah, now finally the law recognizes my ownership of this story, really what's going on is the law is now limiting the ability of everyone else on planet Earth to use their printing presses or blogs yes. or you know, Microsoft Word licensed software in a right. certain way because now they can't reproduce, quote, my story. So really it's not yes. that I have a property right. It's that now everyone else has less of their property rights and their tangible stuff. Yes, and uh, I mean, uh, Tom Palmer points that out in his seminal article, Roderick Long in like 1995, in his anti-IP article, it points out that owning ideas means owning other people. And there's even been some cases about this, like you can't go on stage and like there's some lawsuits against yoga practitioners for like a certain Bikram, some trademark yoga. Now, this is trademark, partly trademark uh, or dance moves that are choreographed moves. You can't dance in a certain way. I think there was a Beyonce was challenged for one of these. Uh, Some people have gotten tattoos on their faces, like some basketball players, and those are copyrighted tattoos. And so now what do you do? Do you, do you actually have to force them to get surgery or laser surgery to remove it? Uh, you have, now, the law usually backs down from these. They find a way you know, because hard cases make bad law or whatever you, you say, but they, they shy away from the extreme implications. But that, those are implications, and some cases have literally ordered books not to be published. J.D. Salinger has his Catcher in the Rye, and there was a sequel written by someone. And his estate went to court, and the court banned the publication. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, um, and that's a good point. I know, like uh, when I was younger, I was a Star Trek geek, and there was you know this whole like genre of Star Trek books that were not you know based on the movies, but just you know people taking the characters invented by Gene Roddenberry and making yes. new situations. And that those are of course all you can't do that. You need to get permission from whoever owns the, the copyright to do that. And it's amazing, you know. So you can't you can't just take Captain Kirk and Spock and put them in some new story because oh no, those characters are owned by whatever Paramount whoever owns it. Well, and you hear the same kind of complaints about like colorization of movies, and people say, "Oh, you're destroying the work." It's like I'm not destroying it. I mean, the, the black and white one's still there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, you don't like it if someone's doing it, but you know, I think Benjamin Tucker had a point. He said something like, "If you go into a public street and drop a bunch of money, people are going to scramble after it. You can't complain that they're doing that." Likewise, if you have an idea that you want to keep to yourself, keep it to yourself. But if you make information public, you can't complain if other people use the information that you make public. And so if you come up with a new mousetrap design, you can keep it to yourself. But if you want to sell this mousetrap, you need to sell it. And you probably want to tout its new features to right. sell it. So you're going to reveal to the world necessarily, in most cases, you're going to reveal to the world how you're doing this. And guess what? You're going to invite competition. Yeah. Um, and people are going to, over time, compete with you. The real complaint, I think, about about not having patents is basically it's a fear of what people call unbridled competition. 
So, and they explicitly say this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, if you think about it, the like the Austrian idea, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm probably slightly misstating it, but the idea is that there's a natural rate of interest or profit, uh, but the profit is something above the rate of natural rate of interest and tends to go down to that as you attract competition. And you attract competition over time when people notice that you're doing something that uh, is a new way of pleasing consumer wants. So, if you have a pizza delivery idea and you start doing that, eventually there's going to be Domino's and uh, other companies and your profit rate will go down. So you have to continually keep innovating or keep your reputation up or something to make this profit. And it might be easier to make profit at first, but not forever. The problem is that in some types of uh, sectors of the economy, some services and goods, um, there's a heavier proportion of that good that is that is easily replicable, like a book, for example, especially nowadays. Like the main value of a book is not the value of the paper. It's 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 the particular arrangement of the ink on it. It's the pattern, mm-hmm. and that's pretty easy to copy. So the concern about people that are in favor of copyright and patentable inventions is that um, – like pharmaceutical drugs – is that those types of things, it's much easier for your competitors to compete. They can compete quicker and sooner then they could build up a competing donut shop or something right. because those are more capital intensive, et cetera. And so basically their fear is that competition is too easy. So they want to, they want to make competition harder. Right. So they want, they want the field uh, – any field of, of economic trade that relies kind of heavily on patterns of information that are easy to replicate, they want to slow down competition to make it more like in the tangible world so that it's harder to compete. So that the innovator has like a resting period where they can make basically monopoly profits for a while to justify their original expenditures. So that's the utilitarian argument, which there's no evidence for, by the way, either on the utilitarian and empirical mm-hmm. side of things. All the evidence points Let, against them. Yeah, let's, yeah. let's stop. Hang on one second. Let me just make sure we drive that point because, yeah, that, that's the last thing I want you to, to hit here is the incentive issue. But, but yeah, just in terms of that, you're, you're right. I mean it's… Like and again, I I know, I know there are particular musicians who listen to this podcast, and I'm I'm trying to be picturing them as the the target audience here to get them to see. So clearly, like in music, yes, you you do copy things, or you or like podcasting, for example. I saw when I started this show that Joe Rogan would have somebody on for three hours, and at first I thought that's insane. Who's going to sit there? But then I actually listened to some of the guests that I enjoyed, and I realized, oh wow, you can really get into deep stuff if you have someone on for a long time. That you're not going to get, you know, like as opposed to like Tom Woods' rapid fire interviews where he has people on, and so, so imagine if Joe Rogan could sue me and say, no, no, that was my idea to have really long interviews. You're not allowed to do that, Bob Murphy. I mean, that would be insane. Yeah. Or Einstein comes up with E equals M C squared. Imagine if other physicists had to pay him a fee to use that equation, or you know, and like a mathematical theorem. Once it gets proved. Imagine if somebody said, "You know what? I don't. I don't want anyone of the mathematician using this." Would would other you know math journals have to pretend they didn't know that? And you know, so it's it's insane. So the the patent system comes up with arbitrary exceptions in in response to those things because they know that it, life would break down if you started doing that. So they'll they make up an exception for for purely abstract laws of nature and math mm-hmm. for no real good reason. I mean, you could use e equals mc squared and apply it to make some nuclear power device, maybe you get a patent on that, but not the original abstract formulation. Mm. Uh, Ayn Rand, they try to distinguish between sc- discovery and invention. And as a patent lawyer, I, my personal view is uh, none of these things are objective at all. The law is totally objective. Mm. It's not even easy to apply the existing law, and the standards in the law are not objective. They're totally arbitrary. 
Um, and, and even in, in music, just to give it like, so they're clearly in order for music to progress, people do have to emulate. I mean, there's a story that I thought was funny. So that you remember stuff in the, the We Are The World song when yeah. all, all those different musicians in the 80s came together. And so the story goes that Michael Jackson went up to Daryl Hall of Hall & Oates and apologized to him and said, hey, I'm sorry, but you know the bass line you guys have in that song can't go for that. You know, no can do that song. That I I stole that for my for Billy Jean. And so for folks, know if you play the beginning of those two songs, actually, you know, at first you might think it's one song or the other. They're very similar. Mm-hmm. And apparently, Daryl Hall said, "Oh, don't worry about it. We stole it from somebody else." <laughs> and so right. obviously, they were joking, and they don't mean literally steal. But clearly, musicians all you know because oh, you know, um, the Beatles were influenced by Buddy Holly. You know, there's a story of Paul McCartney talking about he and John Lennon went to go see him. It's like, wow, how is he playing like that? And just studying him and going back to their garage and trying to reproduce it. Clearly, for music to progress, artists have to, quote, steal from each other all the time. And so it's a pretty arbitrary line to say, where should the law step in? And science, too. I mean, every everything is incremental. There, there are no inventions or innovations in a vacuum. Everything builds upon previous knowledge. Uh <laughs> Even the fact that we use language to communicate with each other. No one, no one came up with the language, but we all use it and benefit from it. Um, I think people also confuse the idea of accreditation and dishonesty and plagiarism. Those are all completely different concepts. Yeah. So they, they think certain people should get credit. You know, Michael Jackson should be seen as the guy who came up with Billie Jean. And by and large, he is. Um, but that's got nothing to do with rights. And plagiarism is a completely different thing altogether. That's basically pretending you're the author of something in a contractual setting like a school, like a university, without giving full attribution credit. But there's almost like this obsessive idea that you should have a – we should live hyper-footnoted lives, and every single little thing we ever do, we have to have some chain of credit. I mean, Galambos, who I mentioned was one of the craziest – he is renowned to have changed his name from James Andrew Galambos to Andrew Joseph Galambos because his dad was the other name, and he didn't want to infringe his dad's rights in his name. <laughs> and he had this idea that Thomas Paine invented the concept of liberty. So every time he used the word liberty, so what he thought his followers should all put a nickel in some box, some escrow account for whenever we finally discover who Paine's descendants are, and we can pay them back for using the word liberty. <laughs> but they're not even joking. It sounds yeah, like a joke. Yeah. But this is the consequence of taking this idea seriously of owning owning ideas because mm-hmm. there is no dividing line. And like I said, no idea should be ownable because ideas are not ownable. And then you'll have people who defend the IP system. They will they will say, "Oh, you're you're being uh, dishonest because the copyright system doesn't let you protect ideas. It only lets you protect the application of idea." I, I, but on the other hand, half of the IP supporters say it's important to protect ideas. Right, so right. they will just flip back and forth as they need to, and avoid the fundamental issue, which is that you cannot own patterns of information, or as Roger, Roger Long called it in his article, you, you can't own universals. Like if you own, let, let's say you own a red car, you own that car. But you don't own its redness. If you did own its redness, that means you own everything that's red. So all of a sudden, you own every everyone else's red car, or maybe never their red balloons, maybe everything they have, or maybe everything that weighs the same amount. So every item that you own, piece of property, has material attributes or characteristics or properties. It has weight, an age, a size, a shape, and then patterning on its surface like a book. You don't own those features. You own the thing, and it has certain features. Uh, so this is the mistake people make. They they abstract away the ownership of the resource. By the way, it's the same thing with Bitcoin. I, I, I'm I'm a Bitcoin 
enthusiast and uh, and hopeful type, right? And and interested in it. But when people say you own a Bitcoin, a Bitcoin is just an abstract concept of a of an entry in a ledger, and the ledger is just a collection of data or information which is stored on various people's hard drives around the world. Those hard drives are physical devices owned by individual people. They own those hard drives. No one else owns it. So if you were to own your Bitcoin, that means that if someone steals it, you should be able to go to a court, and I guess they're supposed to give an order to all the thousands of people around the world who have hard drives storing the blockchain and give them an order to change the to unwind it or to change it, which is what basically <laughs> Craig Wright, by the way, who's the Bitcoin SV guy, is arguing for right now. Um, because he, he's arguing that the Bitcoin Cash, the BCH people, conspired uh, and violated antitrust law. He's got a lawsuit he filed in Florida or one of his companies. And I guess the theory is they want this court to order the Bitcoin Cash blockchain to unwind and go back to where Craig wants it to be, mm-hmm. which is, of course, impossible technologically. And it's just ridiculous. And it, But it demonstrates that this whole idea of owning – having a property right in patterns of information – has to undermine property rights and other things. Right. Just like when you print money, the government prints money, it reduces the purchasing power of existing money. Just like when the government comes up with positive rights, it's not free. They can't just grant everyone a right to education or healthcare. We all have to pay for it. <laughs> so nothing comes for free. And when you grant property rights in non in non-scarce things, you necessarily necessarily undermine property rights in scarce things. Precisely because all property rights are enforced by physical force and can only be enforced against physical things, right? I mean, if I sue you for copyright infringement, I want your money, or I want to stop you from push publishing a book. So I'm really just using this as an excuse to take care of other resources. Mm-hmm. So I, I know we only have you for a few minutes left here, and I want to get to the questions. So I would encourage those listening, because I know, you know, here I think Stefan makes a great case for just us, you know, a direct frontal assault on the notion of intellectual property, but you have concerns like, well, gee, but why would anyone write songs again? So I, especially for those who are up and coming artists, I would say, imagine how much easier it would be for you to break out and become known and get big. If the major record labels didn't have this incredible power that the government system right now is giving to them, that a lot of what you do is, you know, to get new you, you quote, give away your music for free and you make your money, you know, touring and things like that, or, or having, you know, signed albums or other goodies that you give away besides just the actual song itself. So I would, I would say that actually, I think your business model right now probably does involve a lot of just quote, giving the songs away to, to, to get your name brand recognition up and, and that, the way you know the reason it's so hard to break into the music industry is precisely because these big players have the government has their back and sort of you know beating down people who challenge their monopoly position or their cartel position. And, and not only Are you that, okay we with have that cop- summary yeah, on that we, issue, Stem. Yes, and we have copyright right now, and their songs are still being copied because of the internet. So copyright. It's too late. It doesn't prevent copying anyway. Yeah, sort of like so. a drug law or a drug war. That even if you thought it was a good idea, clearly it's not working. So it's not like we're getting rid of heroin use by making it illegal. Okay, so Steph, I know. Uh, let me just let's go real quick through these. I know you got to get going here soon, but we just have uh, six questions from the listeners. If you just want to do a rapid fire, is that all right with you? That's fine. Okay, yeah, we can, sure we can go. We can go a little bit longer if it's up to you. If, oh if yeah, it's fine with, it's fine with me. I, yeah, I just don't want to yeah. tax you too. I know your time is scarce, so. Uh, so somebody asks, what is his favorite fiction book? Oh, well, um, 
probably, the U.S. Constitution. Uh, oh, <laughs> good one. Probably the Chronicles of Thomas Covenant by Stephen R. Donaldson, uh, the first trilogy of his. Also love The King Must Die by Mary Renault. Uh, I don't think I have a favorite. I actually don't. My mind doesn't always work that way, like having a favorite, especially because tastes change over time. Sure. Um, I, I, yeah, it's Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis is also a great one. So, okay, that's good. a good selection. Somebody asks, what was his worst story working as a lawyer? I think maybe he means the best story involving something that was distasteful when you were working as a lawyer. I mostly do patent prosecution, which means obtaining patents for people. And I sort of assuage my discomfort over that by imagining myself to be like making guns or bullets. Like, So I'm selling it to people. Some can use them for good, some for evil, because a patent can be used justly, defensively. So I don't have a – it's distasteful. I wish my job didn't exist. I wish that people didn't have to waste money on people like me. Um, in terms of litigation, I've been lucky that I've only been involved on the defense side of patent suits. If I had to be part of the offensive assertion of a patent, I I probably wouldn't – I wouldn't do it now, and I don't know what I would – I would just turn down the, mm-hmm. the client. So can but you I'm, explain I'm, I'm, what, in, what do you mean yeah. defen- defensive – you practice defensive patent line, or what does that mean? So if I own a patent, I can go after my competitors and just sue them. Or I can, if I'm a patent troll, I can have a patent and just go after people practicing something similar to what the patent covers and ask them for money. Otherwise, I'm going to sue them. So um, that would be an offensive use. I would say an aggressive use. It's, it's an act, you're trying to use the courts to steal people's property. But if someone sues me for patent infringement, I might counter sue them for violating one of my patents. And I think that's totally justified. This is one reason why people accumulate patent war chests is so they can use them defensively if they get attacked. So you have all these people, it's sort of like the nuclear situation between US and Russia. They keep accumulating these weapons for tons of money just to keep each other from using them, right? It's like okay, that. So just as a deterrent effect. It's a deterrent. And it's also, it helps them establish cartels. So you have Apple and Samsung and Google, all these big companies, IBM and you know, GE, they accumulate patents in air, vast areas. And if they sue each other, they can usually settle eventually and cross cross license and then go back to business and pass these wasted costs on to the consumer. Um, but little companies can't even compete because if they start competing and making like some small startup starts making a smartphone similar to an iPhone, they're going to get sued out of existence and they won't have any patents to sue Apple back with. So it helps establish walled gardens or cartels or oligopolies, mm-hmm. uh, So, which is not surprising because a patent is a monopoly grant by the government. Right, right. And, and then you have – the government has antitrust law, and so the courts say, well, there's a tension between <laughs> – like you think there's a tension <laughs> between the government's antitrust law and the government's patent law. So they say, well, if you abuse your patent monopoly, then that's an antitrust violation. In other words, if you use it. <laughs> so the, the government's uh, schizophrenic, I, I, I like to say. Mm-hmm. So I don't have any horror stories. I actually enjoyed the practice of law. I, I worked in Philly for a while, and I enjoyed – practicing in a, in a Philly law firm, even though being from Louisiana, um, I was kind of more intellectual than a lot of these guys and knew more about patents and double you know, E stuff. And so it was fun sort of being a, a low-class lawyer in Philly, uh, but <laughs> gotcha. I don't have any horror stories. I, I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed law. I had no, I never had any traumatic experiences. Mm-hmm. Well, probably if I asked the guys in that firm, they'd say, oh yeah, there was this one guy from Louisiana. Let me tell you stories <laughs> about that clown. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, uh, I can't. Re- there was. I did make one big mistake when I was younger, but I 
I can't repeat the details, but I, I typed something in a joke email to my secretary, and she made a mistake of telling a female partner at the firm because she thought it was funny. Mm. And uh, that almost got me in trouble. But uh, I've learned to uh, uh, <laughs> learn what jokes were inappropriate now. Did you say, hey, that was my email or my note you shouldn't have given that to somebody else? That was, you know, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you offline. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, let's see. Somebody wants to know, is there any – Substance area where Kinsella disagrees with Hoppe, maybe on the naming of your article. <laughs> there are a couple of quibbles I have in some things. Um, I think in his argumentation ethics, um, he glided a little bit too um, casually back and forth between uh, the way he described uh, property rights. At, like he he used it descriptively sometimes, mm-hmm. and he used it normatively sometimes, um, but. And I mentioned that in my long review I did in 1994, but I, I thought that could be repaired just by carefully right. working it out. Um, maybe some little economic issues where like he and Guido have disagreed like on this uh, division between um, y- your uh, your income between uh, savings and investment and consumption mm-hmm. and kind of the, the praxeological – the way to look at that. I think that's in the footnote of Guido and Hans's two articles in that big, that big uh, fractional reserve banking debate. Uh, I don't think I agree with Hans or any of the Rothbardians, strictly speaking, with this idea of fractional reserve banking being inherent fraud and this kind of double title problem. I think they're. I think that's slightly wrong. Um, I think in practice it's been fraudulent. And I think it's economically incoherent, so I agree with them ultimately. But I think that this idea that it's inherently fraud and that even if the bank put a big warning notice on these IOUs they're issuing that this is just an IOU and it's not backed, um, that it should still be outlawed. Like Huerta de Soto is really um, strong on this. He thinks that should be outlawed. Um, I, I think that gave ammunition to the to the free bankers like a White and Selgin because they could pick on them for that mistake when if they'd stick stuck in, stuck to the economic incoherencies of fractions or banking, that would have been better. But that's just a little mm-hmm. issue. Um, okay. I'm I'm probably not quite as uh, I'm not I'm not really as interested in the culture war stuff like Hans is um, that he got into later in his democracy and subsequent stuff, but I find it interesting and, and persuasive. He does have an article uh, where he posits an alternative explanation for the Malthusian trap, how we got out of it. Um, and I tend to agree with his criticism of existing theories, like they're not adequate, like explaining the Industrial Revolution, basically. Um, and his theory sounds somewhat plausible, but I don't think he proves it. It's basically that we we evolved to a certain amount of intelligence uh, like in Europe at a certain point in time around 1800, where the average intelligence was high enough that the average person was smart enough to emulate the ideas of the in- of the geniuses who had always been there, and then then the ideas could spread. Um, that is a that is an intriguing theory, but I don't I don't I'm not persuaded of it. I have I have, I have a different theory, but um, I don't know. But that's about it okay. that I can think of offhand. We got two more here. So one person wants to know. So here, here he's alluding to something I wasn't aware of. I guess you had a discussion with Nick Sarwark about the LP, and, and and this guy just wants to know, like, do you have any further thoughts about how the LP should proceed going forward, or if that's not your bag of, or your your cup of tea, or how? Do, what's your take on that? Well, I, my, like I mentioned, my first encounter with the LP was um, Ron Paul when he visited LSU, and uh, I think my very first vote 
was 80, 84, Reagan's second election. I voted for Reagan, even though I was a registered Democrat because my parents told me to be. <laughs> so my very first vote was a Republican, but after that, I, I always voted Libertarian, even though I was never a member of the party, and even though I don't vote usually. But I've never been hostile to the LP. I just think politics is kind of futile. But when Tom Woods – I don't know if you were part of that, but about a year or two ago when the LP Mises Caucus got going, and Wood, and I think Woods and some other guys got criticized – they criticized the LP, and then they got criticized. They said, you're not even a member. How can you criticize us? They said, all right, then we're going to join. So I think Woods and three or four, five other prominent libertarians all joined, and I thought to myself – you know, over the years, everyone always asks me. They always all the normal people in my life. They always confuse libertarian small L with libertarian big L. They all assume I'm a member of the LP, and I'm always trying to explain to them the difference. And they don't understand. They don't care. And I thought to myself, you know what? I'm not really into political activism. I don't think it's going to work. I, I'm more into theory and um, trying to live a good life and do it that way, and or whatever, you know. Um, but they are my peeps, basically. So these guys are all my people. Why am I denying it? So hell yeah, I'll just so I joined the LP, just to join. And I, my one thought was, if I could make one difference, it would be to get them to adopt an anti-IP plank in their platform. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no reason it shouldn't be in there. I know it probably won't be because there's such a Randian influence, and there's such a utilitarian inter, uh, uh, segment of, of libertarians. But uh, I thought maybe I can do that and. Um, there's actually this girl, Carol Ann, Karen Ann Harlos, who is on the committee or something, and she asked me for a draft I don't know, maybe nine months ago, and I had written one actually, a draft of how the LP platform should be amended to oppose patent and copyright, and I gave it to her, and I think they're trying to get it on some state platform first. So if I could make that one change, I would be, I'd be somewhat mollified, but I have nothing against the LP. I, I personally think that whoever they nominate for president should be a libertarian. Um, I would not. I would not have voted for William Weld. Mm-hmm. I would. I don't think he's libertarian. Uh, I would. I wouldn't mind voting for a minarchist or someone who I don't agree with on everything. But at, at least if they call themselves libertarian and they they're basically a core libertarian, so I'll probably vote libertarian <laughs> again if I vote in two years. Um, but I have nothing but good wishes for the LP, and I understand why they why there's squabbles about purism versus pragmatism and all that kind of stuff. Right. Okay, and then the last one is somebody wanted to know uh, what are your religious views, if if you have any. If you want to talk about that at all, <laughs> you want to answer for me. <laughs> well, I was reared Catholic. I was a strong Catholic until maybe fourteen or fifteen, and then I basically started questioning things and became an atheist. So I'm an atheist, and I was kind of militant for a while. Um, I, I don't think I'm militant anymore. Um, I'm very. I understand. I, put it this way. I would prefer real religious people than secular Democrat atheist liberals who worship the state. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're religious too. They just think they're better than that, and they, they worship a horrible, monstrous god, which is the state. Um, so I'm, I'm an atheist, but I try not to make it the core of my life, and I'm, I'm not – I don't think I'm militant about it. And I – when I get weird questions like, do you respect – other people's belief. I don't know what that means to respect someone's beliefs. I mean, right. I, 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 I can say if I think someone's ill-willed or, or honest or intelligent or correct, but I, I think people have the right to believe whatever they want, and I understand that some people are religious, and I, I don't think I'm hostile to it. Um, so that's my basic stance. Okay. Fair enough. I will be praying for you, Stefan. 
<laughs> I'm not offended by that. <laughs> okay, well, thanks so much for your time. At some point, I want to have you back because, as you alluded to, you and I do disagree about argumentation ethics, but I think that would, you know, we, we wouldn't be able to do it justice in this in this setting. So maybe I'll have well, you back again. We could probably talk a good 30, 40 minutes on that. So maybe we should do a separate episode because it would probably be interesting to, we've never really talked that much in detail about it uh, apart from our writings. Right. And, and that, that is definitely something I want to have you back on and we can talk about that. So I understand, Stefan, that you have some books that are coming out in the near future. Do you want to tell the listeners about them? Sure. Uh, real quickly, I, I do plan to write a new IP book someday from the ground up based upon the, the kind of different ways I've learned since writing that I, the other one um, about presenting the argument and some nuances I've learned since then. And I'm going to call that copy this book. Um, <laughs> so maybe two, three years, that'll come out. But that's a long-term project. I might also do an anti-IP libertarian reader with a, David Kepsel and maybe Gary Chartier. But this year I have coming – next month I have a book coming uh, – well, Chris Schiabara in New York and Roger Bissell uh, and one other editor um, – have a book coming out called Dialectics of Liberty. It's being published by Lexington. I think it comes out in June. And I have a chapter in there on uh, on um, sort of the argumentation ethics and my own approach to um, to rights theory, libertarian rights theory. And in September, I have a book coming out called uh, International – I keep forgetting the title of my own book. Let me see here. <laughs> International Investment, Political Risk, and Dispute Resolution. A Practitioner's Guide, and that's by Oxford, and that's uh, going to be like a 800-page lawyer's legal scholar's You're like a serious on. thinker, huh? <laughs> well, in a way, this is my most practical and mundane book, but it, in a way, it's my most systematic um, and scholarly work. But it's – I have two co-authors. My one co-author is an, um, an American lawyer who lives in France who's one of the world's leading international arbitrators, Noah Rubens. And we have a new co-author this time uh, from from Cyprus, a, a Cypriot law professor. So we cover the whole spectrum of international investment law, and it's fascinating. Uh, and the only libertarian angle is that, from my point of view, the goal of it is to look as a lawyer for the benefit of clients at ways to protect their property rights when they invest in other countries because there can be takings and mm-hmm. expropriations and things like that. And then finally, I've been working for many years on just coming up with the energy to put together uh, an edited collection of my more um, libertarian theory articles. And that should come out either later this year or early next year, and that's going to be called Law in a Libertarian World. Okay, that sounds great, and I guess the barking dogs means it's time for us to wrap up here. So, uh, yeah, that's my, By the way, that's my poodle, uh, uh, Louis, Louis von Mises Kinsella, barking. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. So we, I will have you back on at some point, stuff because we need to talk about argumentation ethics, but obviously we don't have time to do it now. That's something where we, you and I do disagree strongly, and it'll be good good for the listeners to hear that. So I'll have you back at some point to talk about that. In the meantime, thanks so much for your time, Stefan. Uh, thanks for being a part of The Bob Murphy Show. Thanks. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com.